Welcome to episode 29 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samples. Today's guest has lived through many challenging leadership moments. His career in aviation began as a baggage handler, and he rose to the ranks until he became CEO of an airline, and later was recruited to be CEO of another one. He's also been an entrepreneur and has served as director of several startup technology companies. Specifically, he is the former CEO of the highly successful Southwest Airlines, whose foundation and culture placed people first. Later, when recruited to be the CEO of Failing Brandup International, he was the first CEO to successfully restructure a major airline into, through, and out of Chapter 11. Earlier, he spent over 20 years with United Airlines, his final position being Group Group VP of Marketing. He learned along the way that cultures that place people as their number one priority have the greatest long-term impact and success. He has shared his leadership lessons in his book, The Winds of Turbulence, and through a case study Harvard University wrote about his experiences at Brandeis International called The Ethics of Bankruptcy. He is a speaker and advisor on business issues such as change, leadership, and ethics. His passion for aviation began when he was growing up on an Iowa farm and learned to fly out of a pasture. Please join me in welcoming Howard Putnam. Good afternoon. Howard, thank you so much for joining me from your home near Reno, Nevada. Um, I want to just jump right in. I know my audience will be curious to hear a little bit more about you and your day-to-day, but since this is a podcast about leadership and building great networks, I was curious, how would you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, let's take it in reverse. Uh, Growing up on that Iowa farm, I was very fortunate to uh, have two parents at home. Uh, on the farm, and two older sisters who mentored me, and they uh, made me toe the line. I learned about accountability, responsibility at a young age. My dad let me go drive the tractor when I was 10, year, 10 years old. I always took that very seriously that I wouldn't make a mistake or yeah. <laughs> upset the tractor, that kind of thing. Uh, I worked with animals. Uh, I helped my dad deliver calves in the middle of the night. I never enjoyed that, but I saw what he went through and it taught me what life was about. We had some great neighbors just down the road. Uh, This little town was called Bedford, Iowa. It's in southwest Iowa. And just down the road was the Spencer family. And Dean and Doris were my age and they were twins. And so we all three sort of grew up together, helping each other, and I learned teamwork. And my parents taught me, you know, if your neighbor needs your tractor, you loan it to him or her. If they need your overhauls, you loan your overhauls. <laughs> and they taught me very early on that this is what, and I didn't know what the word leadership even meant then, but this is what you're going to grow up to do. And you better take responsibility for, for your actions. And I enjoyed that. And they were always encouraging, never, never discouraging. And every time we did something positive, 
uh, we got applause, we got reinforcement. That is so important to young people uh, growing up. And then when I got in high school, uh, they made me president of the freshman class. I mean, this is a small town. There were only 45 in my class. And I enjoyed that. And then when we became seniors, they elected me president again. And by then, I began to understand, wait a minute, maybe you don't know why you're doing it, but you have some talent here that others will follow what you're talking about if, if you tell them what the destination is or the flight plan and then get them involved. And so I think that was probably, you know, early in the, when I was 16, 15, that's what I really figured out. I do have some skills and I like this. It's nice you had all these early opportunities to practice teamwork and leadership and understanding that, that you're able to see back that the family um, that you came from really set you up for the life that you're able to lead, that you um, then have this opportunity. It's kind of funny that sometimes you're given the opportunity for leadership like you did in your freshman year and you don't know what to do with it. It sounds like by your senior year, you had figured out a little bit more of, oh, what this could be and that people will pay attention. Like you said, if you have a plan in place and you're able to articulate what that plan is. Did you continue then after high school to, to seek opportunities then more purposefully around leadership or were they continuously more a surprise and you just saw, it, saw the opportunity and took it? Both. After high school, I, I had offers for some college uh, scholarships. I really didn't want to go to college. And I know if the educators that are listening to this will be cringing when he says that, but I really didn't want to spend four years in a classroom. Aviation was my passion. And that's another part of leadership is that it was never a job. I never worked a day in my life. It's always been a passion. I loved it when my dad taught me how to fly. I guess when I was 12 or 13, I couldn't fly by myself until I was 16. But I really love that being able to take responsibility and, and, and be in, in charge of an airplane. So I assumed I was going to be a pilot not knowing that I'm partly colorblind. So after high school, I went to a little uh, person, airline personnel school in Kansas City, Missouri, called Weaver Airline. It's out of business. Weaver Airline Personnel School. And once I did the correspondence course and I went down to go to school for eight weeks, on my third day there, I realized this was an employment agency this was not really an educational opportunity. So I vowed the first airline that comes in and has a job available, I'm out of here. So on Thursday of the first week, <laughs> it was so professional. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, they, the teachers, the instructors said, oh, we have a man from Capital Airlines here. He was wondering how many of you would be interested in being a transportation agent. I didn't have a clue what a transportation agent was. It was a, it was a baggage handler is what it was. I raised my hand. So I went out for the interview along with four or five others, and 10 minutes later, I was hired. And then I found out I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to be working on the ramp loading bags for $220 a month. Wow, is that exciting. So that's where I got my start. And three months later, I, winter was coming to Chicago at Midway Airport, and I realized, you know, being outside loading bags is not a good place to be in the wintertime. So I went inside and met Ray Lamphere, the 
passenger service manager and convinced him that I would make one great ticket agent. And so at age 18, why I got off the ramp and went in and started learning how to uh, be a ticket agent. And I just kept, you know, whenever they said, we need somebody to do this, I'd say, I'll do that. We need somebody to work overtime. I'll do that. And I learned that if you were the one that was uh, the the extrovert and you you were uh, taking charge and willing to go the extra mile, uh, you could do that. So I think that was really the basis for my leadership opportunities. Howard, I find it so remarkable that you really have learned this industry from the ground up, from from the frozen ground up, because a lot of people step into a leadership role um, taking a senior exec position, not knowing how the business is run as intimately as you do. And how do you think having all these experiences informed you once you reach the C-suite? Oh, it was so, so important, Robbie. And I learned how important people are. I mean, today, even though we're in a technology world, it's still a people business. And I learned to respect those who were older than I was. I mean, I was now 18 and getting more responsibility. And I had, and then by a year later, they made me the passenger service manager on a shift. Mm. And so I had 30 people reporting to me at age 19. I had no college education, no real leadership training. It was intuitive. And I often say that I've had four careers. And the first career was growing up on the farm in Iowa, and that was so important. Second career was aviation. Third was being an entrepreneur, and fourth was speaking. But I can't, I can't reinforce enough to those folks who are parents, like you are, with young, with young youngsters at home, how important you are in their lives. And uh, I always give my credit, give the credit to my parents, Virgil and Mary Putnam, and. Uh, uh, they've both been gone a long while, but uh, I think of them every day. You know, Howard, I've asked this question of so many people uh, as I've done these interviews, but this is the first time I'm really sitting back and reflecting on the influences that I've had at home. And uh, my parents gave me a lot of opportunities to experience the world at a very young age through different businesses that my dad had. And I was taking on responsibility, you know, age 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, um, that, that I know shaped me, that I know gave me the chance to, to learn how the world worked and how to work with people, how to, how to upsell, how to work with customers, you know, how to deliver far beyond what, the, what people were looking for. And um, you're right. I, I hope that I am able to gift that to, to my children in the same way because it really, yeah, it's profound. It's how early the, those beginning um, opportunities can really last a lifetime. The other thing, Robbie, is the word that I did not use is integrity and ethics, which they taught me. And when I was about 10, uh, I decided I needed some new reflectors for my bicycle. I didn't have any money. So I don't know what prompted me to do it, but I went into the Western Auto Store in Bedford, Iowa, and I found a couple of reflectors. Nobody was looking, and I took them out of the shelf and stuck them in my pocket. And... Within 10 seconds, somebody grabbed me by the nap of the neck and threw me up against the wall and said, kid, you don't steal anything. And he really lambasted me, scared the heck out of me. And 
He said, you go home and tell your parents what you've done, and I want you to come back here tomorrow morning with either your mom or your dad and stand up in front of them and tell me that you're sorry. So I learned years later, we became friends. George became my school bus driver later. Anyway, I learned he didn't even know who the heck I was. And uh, he said, what a dummy you were. You actually went home and told your parents what you had done. <laughs> and I said, well, that's what they taught me to do. I remember my mom cried that I stole, tried to steal something. And that made a lasting impression on me also, which is the other piece of the accountability, the responsibility toward leadership. So how would you define leadership? Oh, well, I'm not sure I can. I just always felt it was someone who was willing to stand out in front, uh, be naked, take the flack that's coming at you, and protect your people, and be sure they understood what the mission and the goal was, and you're willing to uh, get out there and, and lead them to do it. But we're teammates. I don't if I just watched, uh, or didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't watch, I read the article this morning about the uh, two ladies in the Olympics, uh, yesterday or the day before, and the one from New Zealand and the other from the United States, and one f got tripped by somebody else, and they both fell down. And the girl from the United, the young lady from the United States, stopped and helped pick up the young lady from New Zealand. And they both never, they never won, but they held on to each other. I mean, it's a very moving experience. Held on to each other. And they crossed the finish line much, much later. But uh, they were teammates. And I think that's leadership. You can't explain it sometimes. It's just do the right thing. That's great. That's such a good example. Because it's the spontaneity of that moment that you, you can't plan for it. That in that moment, you choose to show leadership. And everything you've done in your life sort of leads to that moment. And then it's also doing it when no one's watching, unlike the Olympics where we're all watching. Um, both, both those kinds of private moments and those very public ones can give you a chance to step out in that leadership moment. So you've had these, like you said, these four careers. So you've talked a, a little bit about your time in the Iowa farm. You talked a little bit about aviation. What, less, what did you take from the aviation experience? Because so you're, you're probably best known, and he even got written up, like I mentioned, Harvard University wrote up this whole um, business uh, uh, you know, brief about your experience there. Um, the Moving in to Braniff International, so you were with a very highly successful company, Southwest, and that's the lessons you've learned about people, putting people first. You have this opportunity, you go to Braniff, and it's not what you expect. Yeah, it was far from what I expected. Uh, we had three great years at Southwest. We tripled in size. We tripled in profitability. Uh, we went through airline deregulation. Uh, we wrote the vision statement, which 30 years later they're still using. And the mantra over the door that I learned from my mentors earlier at United and Capital and on the farm was higher attitudes. Develop the skills, higher attitudes, higher attitudes. And we preached that over and over, and Southwest is still doing that today. So we had three years of great success, and here's this much bigger airline out at DFW Airport. We were at Love Field in Dallas, and they were going down the tubes. 
at Braniff International. And the CEO had been a great CEO under uh, airline regulation. But when airlines were deregulated in 1979, his name was Harding Lawrence. He's deceased now. But his ego got in the way. And that's one of the biggest dangers in leadership is when you think you are the one, uh, look out. And I always say to folks when I'm speaking, if your CEO has a big ego and won't listen, go find another job now because your company is going to go down the tubes. Anyway, Harding overexpanded, uh, lost $200 million the first year after deregulation, lost another $100 million the next year, and finally they fired him. So they came recruiting me from Southwest because they liked what they saw. And I was ready for another challenge after three years of all the success we had. And, then, and maybe that was my ego getting in the way. But when I looked at the uh, due diligence, the financials, it looked to me like even though they were in financial trouble, we had a 50% chance of saving it. But I knew that, and this is another ingredient of leadership, know what your weaknesses are. And mine was finance. My strength is marketing, people, planning, thinking ahead. But finance was my weakness. So I went to my CFO at Southwest, Phil Guthrie, and I had hired Phil into Southwest. And we were great friends, and we were complete opposites. But we really worked well together, so... I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this, but I'm not going to go unless you would want to go with me and we go as a team. And we, all, we both looked at all the numbers, and what we didn't know is the numbers weren't right. Uh, there wasn't as much cash there as we thought. And so once we agreed to go and we sat down with our wives, my wife Krista and Phil's wife Beverly, and we sat down for three hours on a Sunday afternoon at our house in Plano, Texas, north of Dallas, Went through all the risk, and Phil and I both thought we had a 50% chance of saving him. And the wives said, let's do it. Well, when we got there, we found out we had 0% chance. They had spent over $200 million paying off the payables in the last three weeks that were not in the numbers that Phil and I saw. So here we are on day one on a Sunday afternoon, and we're seeing the real numbers. We got 10 days of cash. So you think you're pretty smart until you think, look, Lord, I've now got a company with 10,000 employees, a billion dollars in revenue, almost a billion dollars in debt, and we got 10 days of cash. And I tell you, it'll, it'll bring a lump to your throat. I was 41, let's see, I was 44 years old. And I thought, you know, I've never had any crisis management training or experience. So we're going to have to learn this as we go. And so Phil and I did. And we kept it alive for seven months. Then we had to take it through Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We stayed around for another 16 months, got it reorganized, got the secured creditors paid. The unsecured creditors in a bankruptcy never do well. And we left with our heads high that we did the best we could. And we got the airline flying again and got about 3,000 people back to work, as I recall. Wow. That, I mean, that's quite the challenge. And I love that part of what you went into it with was an understanding of where your own weaknesses were and that you tried to then um, bolster that by bringing on somebody that you knew you'd work well with 
I mean, the fact that the numbers weren't <laughs> weren't what they were, uh, you did every due diligence you could, but you still found yourself in a very challenging moment. And it's it's pretty incredible that you were able to move through all of that and leave them kind of whole still at the end because you just said some big numbers that today $200 million is a lot of money. You know, we're talking a lot of years ago. I can't even fathom what that actually would translate to today, $200 million. That's um, an unbelievable amount of money to, to not know about in the midst of trying to decide whether to take on this, this huge challenge. And I also love that you both uh, sat down with your families to, to talk about this, because obviously the risk was gonna be on your families as well, not just on the company. A lot of lessons there. Well, you know, what is it uh, you love most about the work that you're doing now? What's most rewarding? You've, you're now, um, you, you've spent some time as an entrepreneur, now you're really focusing your speaking business. What's, what's been really rewarding about those new roles? Well, I've been speaking now, Robbie, for uh, 25 or 26 years. And it started in 1989 after we had uh, got Brana flying again and after we Phil Phil and I then became partners Phil Guthrie the CFO and we started a little uh, management company ourselves and we bought and sold some small companies in Texas but people kept asking me to speak they wanted to hear about crisis management and in those days there were very few people that had ever taken a big company through bankruptcy and it was kind of like you had leprosy ooh that person you went through bankruptcy so I would be asked to speak, and I would give the money to you know, the. I didn't really have a fee, but they would say, "Well, you know, we want to do something. Okay, give it to charity. Give it to the former United Airlines flight attendants, clip wings, or give it to the Salvation Army." I was on the board, and I think I was giving two thousand or three thousand bucks. But pretty soon, I'm speaking six and seven nights a week. Wow. <laughs> For nothing. And finally, my wife, Krista, who's much smarter than I am, said, why don't you get paid for doing that? <laughs> and I thought, duh, that's a novel idea. So a mile away from us in Plano, Texas in those days, lived a great speaker entrepreneur named Zig Ziglar. And I had known Zig for several years. So I called him up and said, would you have coffee with me? I want to talk to you about speaking. So he spent an hour with me. And he gave me three pieces of advice that were so simple, and uh, I still think about them almost every day. He said, Howard, I've heard you speak. You're not very good. You need to get some coaching. <laughs> and you need to figure out, what do you have to say that people would pay big bucks to listen to? That's number one. Two, you need to write a book. And you need to get a big name publisher. Do not worry about how much of a, an advance or dollars you get. Just get credibility. Uh, and three, you need to join NSA. And I said, what? The National Intelligence Agency or whatever <laughs> it was? <laughs> no, the National Speakers Association. And I wrote that down. And he said, and I, once you join, get active. Get involved. So get coaching, write a book, join NSA. So I went home and discussed that with Krista, and she said, sounds pretty logical to me. So well, we did you, all three. You were pretty lucky to have Zig uh, just nearby to get that kind of advice, to mm -hmm. get you started on the right path, because it sound, that was great advice. Yeah. 
and it still is today. I would, for all of your listeners who are aspiring speakers, it's still good advice today. That's wonderful. You know, I um, I had the opportunity to meet you at this past uh, Influence 2016, which is the annual uh, convention for the National Speakers Association. And I agree. I, I actually joined, as soon as I left my career uh, and decided to do this speaking thing full time that I had, you know, it had been sort of on the side and I decided to focus on it full time. I joined uh, the National Speaker Association right away because I didn't want to spend 10 years trying to figure it out and then join. I wanted to meet my peers and, and meet mentors and, and get inspired. And it's an unbelievable event. Most conferences, you're lucky if you see one or two people speak that are really good and here everybody's there because they're really good. So it's, it's a, it's a week, it's like, you know, five days of intense learning um, and absorbing. It's been really wonderful. And I'm so grateful that, that I got a chance to meet you through uh, the networking that I was doing at the conference. It's another well, sort of opportunity. You just made another point, the networking. You reached out. As I recall, I sent some books to uh, one of the, the Cavett Institute, and you happened to be at that, and you heard about me, and you reached out and said, could I meet with you? You know, and for those of those of us who have been around for a while, I think we have a responsibility to mentor and help young people as they're getting started. And I, I take great pride and satisfaction of that. And I would encourage those of you who are listening to this podcast that whether it's Speakers Association, your, your college alumni group, the company you work for, you know, take some responsibility as a leader and help the young folks come because we've got to keep this group growing and growing. So I'm, I'm honored that you thought of me, Robbie, and wanted to visit. That's wonderful. So, you know, one of the things that um, we, we talk about on this podcast is this idea of all the effort that it takes to be successful, the, the time and the dedication. And I was wondering, with, with that in mind, thinking about the, the wonderful home life that you clearly have and all the intense work that you've done, have you had any kind of ritual around self-care over the years? You know, so how do you avoid not burning out on, on working? You know, some people work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and they have no balance in their life. They, you know, they're consumed by it. Did you have any, anything that you were able to do that was really about decompressing and recharging? Um, was there anything you did on a regular basis or, or strive to do that allowed you to sort of feel reinvigorated to when you went back into work, you were like ready to do it. Yeah. As, as a youngster, I, I started smoking when I was 17 and I smoked for 25 years. And then I realized this is kind of dumb, you know? So I gave up smoking cold Turkey right after I went to Southwest airlines and I started running four miles every morning. And Krista, she was not a runner and, but she was very, very supportive. And that really helped me. Uh, it helped clear my mind. I'd get up at 5.30 in the morning. I'd go run. Then we come back. Then we have breakfast together. And then I would head off to work. It became even more important when we went to Braniff. And we're working 12 and 13 hours a day, six days a week. And that was really, really stressful. 
but I would do the same routine and get up and run and clear my head and so forth. So that was so, so important. I don't run anymore because my knees are shot, so I walk. But you still got to keep you still got to keep your mind active and keep walking, doing something. Excuse me, I work out on machines three days a week. And it gives me time to think. So that's how I relieve myself. And then finally, oh, 15 years ago, Krista said, <laughs> she said, do you remember when you were a little kid, your, your parents said you can have three activities or four activities, whatever it was. I said, yeah. She said, well, I just added them up. You're on seven not-for-profit boards. You're traveling. You're speaking. I think you better get your act together. <laughs> so I did. And I got off all those boards except for two. <clears throat> and then I found uh, – at uh, we live in Reno, Nevada, as you mentioned, near Reno. And I was on the Reno Air Races board for many years. And I saw a P-51 10 or 15 years ago with a four-bladed propeller. And it gave me an idea. And the idea was, you know, an airplane will fly with two blades, three blades, four blades on its propeller, as long as they're all in balance, the word that you use. But if one blade gets out of balance, you're going to crash and burn. And the same thing's going to happen to me. So I drew a propeller with the things that were important to me, uh, family, community, church, work. Uh, downtime. I forget what the other one was. Anyway, uh, I I still use that propeller when I'm when I'm speaking to people, and I'm amazed how often they come up afterwards and say, you know, my life is really out of balance. I never really thought about that before. So you raise a very very good point, and that's that has always been very helpful to me. That's a wonderful metaphor, and and this I feel like it's the kind of concept people can easily remember and take away with them and, and reflect on later on in life when they're like trying to make sure that they're putting their energy towards the things that are, matter most to them. Because I think sometimes we end up just saying yes to the things that are in front of us, but we're not, we're not being the pilots. We're not you know, charting our own course. And it sounds also like your wife was just an incredible ally to you in that moment, helping you take that step back and think about that. I, I, I have a wonderful wife as well who helps me make sure that, because uh, I, I like being involved. I'm, <laughs> I'm someone to get very involved and I'm, and I'm actually someone who actually tends to take on leadership roles and create things um, when I see that they're missing. And I, it's always about making sure that it's serving a purpose and that, it's, that a year later or 10 years later that it's still serving a purpose. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow that propeller and start thinking about my life in that way. Because you're right, if one blade is out of balance, then, well, use crash and burn, which is, which is true. Burnout is, is a yeah. big piece of it. And your propeller may have six blades, five blades, four blades. Everybody's propeller is different. And uh, I, I still have mine as a, as a slide that I use in almost every presentation. And I think I did it 15 years ago on Harvard, gra uh, Harvard graphics, which nobody ever heard of now, <laughs> but it's just a black and white propeller and it makes a point. So I was wondering, you have met so many people in all the various careers that you've had. And it sounds like you're the kind of person who remembers people. I mean, you just name drop people that you worked with a long time ago and that, that obviously played an important role in your life. 
how do you stay in touch with people over the years? Is there anything you're doing consciously to really nurture those relationships? Uh, yes. 15 years ago, I started a very small email group of people that used to work for me at United Airlines when I was the group vice president of marketing before I went to Southwest. And there were six or seven of them who had been either my assistant or reported directly to me that were really talented people. So I said, let's just have our own little private email group and share stuff, stories, family, what are you doing, birthdays, and we still do that. Then I got an idea through the National Speakers Association uh, in 1996 when I was on the, on the National Board of Directors. And the other thing that Zig had said was, if you're going to go to NSA, get involved. So I did. So I served on the National Board for four years. 1996, we were going through a small uh, recession. And we said, we've got to figure out a way to have smaller groups within NSA so that people uh, feel they're a part of a little community and not a part of a 3,000-member association. So I said, okay. And I had an idea, and it was this, how about professional speakers who have aviation in their backgrounds? Either they were a pilot, they were in the military, uh, they love aviation, their dad was a pilot. We're going to be inclusive, not exclusive. So we formed Speaking Eagles, and we have a website, speakingeagles.com. And we meet every year at the National Speakers Association. And we have some great speakers. We had Vice Admiral Mark Fox about three years ago. He was the deputy commander of CENTCOM. Uh, this year we had Waldo, uh, Rob Waldman, who you heard on the main stage, who was a pilot in, the, in, in Desert Storm. So we formed little groups. And that's the way I do networking is reach out to others and see if we have a common interest, and then we stay in touch by email, by phone. And I must get 20 emails a day. Hey, Howard, did you see this one about this plane that crashed or whatever it was? And I decide, okay, is that one worth sending on to the rest of the group? And I think we have 160, 170 on the email group. And we don't talk politics. We don't, sell, we don't tell jokes. We just focus on speaking eagles. So networking, uh, I think, is a marvelous thing, and I've just always been an advocate, as I know you are, Robbie. That's wonderful. I knew about Speaking Eagles, but it's so great to hear about the origin of that. And I imagine that it's been amazing for retention because people have a need to come back now and really reconnect with their tribe. This, these are their people, and they know that no matter what else happens the entire conference, that they're going to have an opportunity to connect with Speaking Eagles and re, you know, get the nourishment from those relationships. And I know that NSA had several small groups like this happen over the years, and that people really spoke very highly of this, these affinity groups that have formed over identity or interest or values. And it's, it's a wonderful thing that you've been able to maintain this all these years. And I love that you started out very simply with an email list years ago uh, with your former colleagues and made an intention to really uh, keep up with people and now, you know, in some ways, social media can replace some of that. But I do think that there's an intentionality of reaching out that, that just posting something doesn't quite do it. It's 
it's the intention of reaching out to someone and, and checking in with them. It sounds like you've really uh, made made some strides in that. And that's why people you know, still reach out to you 20 emails a day to let you know about things that are going yeah. on. And the, and the email thing is more personal and private than just posting. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, but I stopped really tweeting six, eight months ago. I got tired of hearing everybody said, oh, I had lunch today at this place. I really don't care where you had lunch today. <laughs> <laughs> so we just still do the email uh, thing. And every once in a while, we have a big disagreement over something. So we privately uh, sort it out. So, but, uh, you know, you've hit on, you've hit on a key thing of networking and how important that is in life. And I certainly agree. So speaking of, of important things that you would want to know, if you had a chance to talk to yourself at 25 years old, what is the one thing you'd encourage yourself to do to build this kind of strong, supportive professional network? Well, I mentioned very early on that I didn't want to go to college. But what I finally figured out when I was about 23 years old and Capital, the airline I started with, and I was then a salesman, was merged into big old United Airlines. Uh, I finally figured out I need to get some college education. So fortunately in Chicago, at the University of Chicago, they had a program that where if you were 25 years of age and had five years of business experience and could take 40 hours of general education tests and get through that and get a letter of recommendation from the president of your company, which I did from United, you could go into graduate school. So I did. So working 40 hours a week as a salesman, a wife, two kids, a mortgage, two cars. Uh, I went to school two nights a week for two and a half years, and Krista put up with all that. And I got a master's degree uh, in marketing, which was the best thing that I probably could have ever done in education. But the funny part is, after all these years, nobody ever says when they introduced me and they say, and Howard has a master's, an MBA from marketing in the University of Chicago. Nobody has ever come up and said, well, where'd you go to undergraduate school? <laughs> well, I didn't go, <laughs> but nobody ever asked you that. Kind of funny. So that was probably an, another important uh, link in the leadership. So this idea of, of being making sure that you stayed educated and stayed in touch with people all these years, that those are the kinds of things that you, you did do. And that's what you would, the advice you'd give to someone else who was starting out. Absolutely. And I, I often say, and I spoke here in Reno about a year ago at the university of Nevada at Reno and the president was in the audience. And I said, you know, I really believe technical schools, community colleges are so important and you could hear all these higher education people squirming in the audience. But not everybody wants to go to college. If you love being a painter or whatever it is, do it. And uh, don't waste your parents' money or in your own time if that's not what, what is, uh, in your, what's your passion. You know, given that currently it costs two arms and a leg to go to college, if you don't know at 17 years old why you're going, there's a lot of ways that you can find yourself and then go back and, and do an education. It's true. But if you have a passion for something, like seek that out. And and oftentimes college can be very helpful for that. But you're right. These trade schools and, and just going to a community college, that is a great way to sort of start off a career. 
build the relationships and then sort of go from, go from that. It sounds like it worked very well for you. And uh, you went on and also did something at Harvard, didn't you? Yeah, I went to the Advanced Management Program. United sent me there for 13 weeks. And uh, we were, in fact, we were in your city of Boston, in Cambridge, in the February of 1978, probably before you were born. And that's when they had the big snowstorm. I remember it, actually, because I was four years old. <laughs> yeah. So, but while I was there for 13 weeks and with 180 other executives from all over the world, uh, which was a marvelous experience, it hit me clearly that, Howard, you really want to run your own thing. There were two airline cases in the uh, advanced management program, and this is very this is kind of a da-da-da-da, Southwest Airlines and Braniff. How little did I know within four years I would be the CEO of both of those airlines. Now, that kind of gives you, wow, there's something else going on out here. <laughs> so. You know, speak it into existence. That's a big part of it. And it sounds like you've been setting in good intentions your whole life. You've got great support at home. So my, my sort of wrap-up question here for you, Howard, is I know we are going to meet again a year from now. So when we do, and you're telling me what a great year it's been, what kinds of accomplishments would we be celebrating? Well, you'll probably be celebrating many more because you're doing a great thing here, Robbie, to start this podcast and expand span the networking but uh, I just enjoy I, I'm slowing down on the speaking side now but I just enjoy as I did two weeks ago in Tampa speaking to 300 veterinarians they had to teach me how to say that word I've always said veterinarians it's veterinarians and listen to how many lives they have touched with animals uh, and how many families they have touched and it gave me a whole new appreciation that my goodness I'm not just touching people's lives they're touching animal lives and the people that love them and own them so it sort of gave me a new appreciation that there's more than just you Howard visiting with other people what goes beyond the next step so if I can see you in Orlando next July at, at the National Speakers Association and we can share how the year ago, uh, I hope I can do a better job doing that. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for, that's very inspirational to think about the uh, impact that we have as we move through our life, whether it's through speaking or whatever kinds of relationships we have in the world. You're right, to look beyond the immediate, but that ripple effect is definitely there. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Is there a particular website that I could send folks to to learn more about you? Uh, there are two. I have a management, and those of you that are listening that are speaking, uh, I did it on my own for the first 10 years, and then I joined a speakers management, speaker management company in Carlsbad, California called Speaker's Office, and so that website is speakersoffice.com, and the lady that started the company is a great entrepreneur on her own right, Holly Catchpole, so she manages the speaking for uh, 14 of us. So you can go to speakersoffice.com and see who all she manages. And then I have my own little website, howardputnam.com, or you can go to speakingeagles.com. Wonderful. That's it. 
That's excellent. Well, thank you so much, Howard. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Robbie, and thank you for the invitation, and I wish you all the best. You're doing a great thing. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Howard Putnam. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. One of the things that stood out for me was the importance he placed on the values his family taught him and the powerful influence we can have on the children in our lives. Howard shared stories about his childhood and how he learned about accountability, responsibility, and teamwork at a very young age. Those lessons and ones on integrity and respect served him well as he advanced in his career and took on more and more responsibility. In what ways are you influencing the children in your life? What values are they learning from you? What stories will they share about their childhood? It's powerful to think about the ways you shape the lives of the young people in your life. Speaking of impact, I thought it was worth underscoring something else Howard said. Have you ever thought about the ripple effect you're having in your daily interactions? The work you're doing has an impact far beyond those individual moments. It can have a positive impact on everything in that person's life. There are opportunities for leadership everywhere you look once you realize the greater impact you're having on the world around you. Another thing we talked about was how easy it is to take on too much and not focus on what's really important to you. Howard said, an airplane with a propeller will fly with two blades, three blades, or four blades as long as they are balanced. If one blade gets out of balance, you're going to crash and burn. Have you ever reached that point in your life when you have to accept that your life is completely unbalanced? Perhaps you're in that moment right now and you're trying to figure out a way to get back on track. Sit down and name your four propellers those parts of your life that are most important to you. You might have five or even six, but more than that, and you'll have a hard time juggling competing priorities. You'll need to learn to say no to the things that aren't serving your highest priorities until you've got your plane, I mean life, back on course. One of my priorities is building a sustainable and supportive professional network as I continue to grow my business as a professional speaker and podcast host. That's why I use Contactually, a robust CRM that's perfect for managing my professional network. I use it to help me manage my most important relationships and the ones I hope will become significant. As an affiliate for Contactually, they are offering my listeners a free 14-day trial, no credit card required. Let me know if you sign up for the free trial and I'll help you get set up for success. Visit contactually.com slash invite slash schmooze for more details. That's contactually, C-O-N-T-A-C-T-U-A-L-L-Y dot com slash invite slash schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. And for convenience, I'll have the link to the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Just look for episode 29. Well, we've done it again. We'd reached the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening to On The Schmooze. I want to sincerely thank all of you who have already subscribed and left a rating and review on iTunes. By subscribing and leaving a rating review on iTunes, you're helping this podcast get discovered by more listeners. Will you subscribe and leave an honest rating and review? Include your Twitter handle in your review so I can give you a shout out. It's easy to find our iTunes page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be sharing best practices for making introductions via email. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. 
This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.